Hi, everyone. This is Richard Hanania with the CSPI podcast. I'm here with Philippe Lemoyne. Uh, Philippe, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Uh, so Philippe is a PhD student in uh, philosophy at Cornell University. Uh, Philippe, can you just tell the audience a little bit about your background, what do you do, and what your day job is right now? Yes. Yeah, so I'm um, originally I was a computer scientist. I did a bachelor in computer science. Uh, and then I studied political science and like uh, eventually switched to philosophy. And I do philosophy of science and logic. Uh, so I work in particular on for my dissertation on uh, something called paraconsistent logic, which roughly is a kind of logic that can deal with inconsistent theories. And I also work on something um, on basically measurement in science and like how, what kind of stuff do we have to posit in the world to understand the fact that we can use numbers to describe, you know, physical entities or, you know, psychological, sociological sort of things. Uh, and also, how can we be justified in actually using numbers to represent the world? That those are the two the two main issues. And uh, as for my work, uh, I'm currently working uh, on creating my own company as a side project. I can't really tell you what it is yet, uh, but hopefully you'll know soon. Uh, and I do uh, occasionally I do freelance work in uh, data science and uh, programming. Yeah, so you're a man of many talents, and of course, you know, recently, since recently, you're a fellow with us at uh, CSPI, and, um, you know, I, I discovered you through Twitter. I mean, you're also a prolific blogger and uh, a tweeter, so can you talk a little bit about what your works, uh, you know, you, you have um, you have a ex uh, eccentric sort of a collection of interests, so can you just talk a little bit how you decide what to write about and sort of what motivates you? Yeah, I mean, I actually joked, uh, I don't know, it was like a few weeks ago, I joked on Twitter that uh, what I try, you know, the way I decide what to write about is I try to maximize the product of uh, uh, truthness, you know, uh, how outrage is going to make people and how, <laughs> right. and how, you know, the inverse of how many people like believe this thing to be true. And so basically I like to, I like to write to, to make the case for views that few people hold, but that are true. Mm. and that are gonna piss off people <laughs> so that's uh that's kind of that's kind of what i do so i end up writing about a lot of things I and mean, like recently i've been writing a lot about the uh about the pandemic and epidemiology and i, I guess we'll probably come to this eventually i suppose but um well we definitely are going to come to this uh, you know uh because i think there's been well there's a lot to be said against a lot of what's been published in the scientific literature Again, we're going to talk about this. And before that, I've been writing about a wide variety of things from, uh, uh, you know, uh, police, racial bias in policing in the U.S. and elsewhere, uh, immigration, uh, censorship by uh, tech companies, you know, uh, various philosophical issues. I'm still a philosopher, so I, I like that sort of things. Um, you know, it, it, yeah, it's pretty wide range. I'm kind of all over the place. I don't like being boxed in, you know, and like focusing on just this one topic. You know, I, I do get obsessed with things and then I, you know, I have to, you know, you were asking how I choose to, how to write about, you know, often, you know, I was joking about my process, you know, maximizing like this product I was talking about, but um, often I feel like I don't really choose, you know, it just, it's just this question that people are talking about and I get obsessed with it. And like at some point I just, something has to come out and I start writing, you know, that's, that's, 
very often that that's what happens. Yeah, I like that you're not a respecter of uh, sort of PC norms, sort of ideological boxes, but you're also uh, not a respect respecter of uh, uh, disciplined boundaries. And I really, really, it's really um, uh, sort of, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's annoying to see people talk about, well, this person's not an expert in this, or this person's not an expert in that. And often it's the same statistics, it's, it's the same uh, reasoning ability that you, uh, that you use in order to, uh, uh, you know, come to conclusions about things. So the public health community was often wrong uh, throughout the COVID crisis, and they were wrong in different directions. So at the beginning, um, smart, they were wrong in the sense that they thought it was no big deal. I mean, even until like, you know, January and February, when it was clear that it was going to come to the United States, they were saying no big deal. They were saying, you know, of course, at the beginning, they were saying masks are not important. And now um, they've gone, when we're going to obviously talk about this more, they've gone in the opposite direction, not only being uh, too militant on lockdowns, but also uh, on the vaccine. I mean, the vaccines, from all we can tell, basically reduces the risk of serious uh, serious uh, disease or death to basically zero. And there's little or no reason to think that it doesn't uh, stop spread. And they're still very careful. The CDC now says just from the other day that you can, uh, if you've been vaccinated, you can be with other va uh, vaccinated people and you know you can resume normal activities and also unvaccinated people uh you know if they're not high risk or something like that you know but this was just the other day um and you know they're still being very very cautious and meanwhile there's very smart people and this is how you know that the you know that those smart people outside of public health are right because the public health people always catch up to them uh, so the uh, George GMU uh, economists, uh, people like uh, uh, Tyler Cohen, uh, a lot of people in Silicon Valley, at the very start, they were saying, well, this is serious. You know, they were, uh, they were uh, buying masks. They were saying this is a big deal. And eventually the public health people caught up. Alex uh, Trabak is another one who blogs at Marginal Revolution, another one of the GMU economists. And the same thing with the vaccines. Even, um, you know, they were saying basically the vaccines uh, – the cost benefit of vaccines. I mean, we knew for a while that it was likely going to work and the harm wasn't going to be large. And there were people saying that basically, even if you assume this has more side effects than any vaccine in history, uh, it still would be worth just getting it out there, like pretty much as soon as it developed or very, very close, very close on the heels of when it was developed. And eventually they were right. Of course, the vaccines were great and they worked perfectly. And there were several of them um, that all that all worked very well. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, th this is, I think, a broader lesson. Um, I, I think that we talk about, dis uh, you know, disciplines and we say a person is an expert in X or they're an expert in Y. And often that just means they're part of this community with the same uh, biases. And it's not like you needed to have a PhD in public health or a medical degree to understand some basics like masks probably work, like vaccines are probably good. You would judge that just like you would judge any intervention in economics or political science or whatever field uh, you have. Um, so I'm just wondering, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, is this, is this your general impression from, from watching the COVID debate? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've had very similar impression. I am, um, you know, my own, uh, I started really freaking out about this thing. And then, um, you know, I was really annoyed by all the, the mask thing, you know, the, the absurd arguments that people would use against, against mask. And, you know, uh, um, I, I'm not even saying, I don't even know. I think there's kind of like the same people, the same people I would argue against. Uh, you would use those absurd arguments to say that people shouldn't wear masks. I've no, I'm not treating mask almost as some kind of like 
magic, you know, like it's like it's a panacea, which it clearly isn't. You know, we, we now have enough data that you can see that, you know, it's very, we're going to talk about this, basically impossible to precisely estimate their effects, you know, on, on spread in the population. I just think we have very good reasons to think that it helps somewhat and it's very low cost intervention. So that's, that's, uh, it's easily, you know, it's easy to reach the conclusion that people should wear them. But, um, but, you know, no, the same people were using those absurd arguments in back in last year, you know, to say that people shouldn't wear them are basically talking about them as if, you know, they made like this completely huge difference, which they clearly don't. So the, it's kind of absurd how, you know, and, and I don't know, it, it's really interesting how I, I, you would think that more people would see this. More people would see people who are, you know, properly credentialized people like, you know, who are public health experts. Generally, they're generally experts. You know, some people will say, you know, they're not really. No, no, they are. You know, that's the scary thing. They really are. That's that's what they do. That's what they do professionally all the time. And they're basically, you know, saying almost the opposite of what they were saying, you know, last year. That's that's kind of crazy. I mean, it's, it's you know, I've found, you know, to, to, so I, I largely agree with what you said, you know, and I've had like kind of the opposite. You know, I used to be uh, strongly in favor of lockdown. And as we'll discuss, and I've changed my mind. Uh, because I, I found that the data no longer, you know, after I've, we've learned enough that I don't, I no longer think it's a rational, it's the, the optimal policy. Again, we'll talk about this. Um, I have to say that different kinds of experts have performed very differently, I think, during the pandemic. So I, I would say, for instance, that virologists, yeah. uh, virologists, I, I think they've done pretty well. You know, I mean, it, like, uh, I, you know, when I, I also, one of the things, you know, I wrote about a few months ago, I did this very long series um, on um, China and the role it had at the beginning of the pandemic. And one of the things I did, I, I went to read back on Twitter what the debates that virologists were having uh, in early January. And, and you know, it, it, they look pretty good, you know, in retrospect. So, and, and, and I think this has been true. Like, I've seen very little nonsense for viro from virologists at least as long as they were not talking about public health, and as, as long as they were not talking outside of the areas of expertise, not yeah. again, that because I agree with you that it's perfectly fine if people talk about stuff outside of their area of expertise, but, but often, you know, they sometimes they don't. Yeah, and you're them. not a big fan of medical doctors. Is that right? Oh yeah. Med medical doctors. That's another <laughs> kind of, they've been terrible, you know, like, uh, well, an example, you, you mentioned Alex Tabarrok, who's been uh, very insistent, you know, on like in favor of like spacing the, the two doses, you know, for the, the vaccines, those that right. have two doses, right. uh, two shots, that needs two shots. And, and, you know, from a cost-benefit perspective, I think it has been long, very clear that this was a no-brainer. No of course he was right. You know, he was absolutely mm. right. Yeah. But uh, at least in France, you know, I'm, I'm not sure in the U.S., but it's probably the same thing based on what I've seen from medical doctors before. Um, in France, the, the medical establishment was up in arms against this because the... Uh, the French uh, advisory health advisory body actually, for once, made the right decision and advised that the two shots be that the second shots be delayed to 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 deal with the shortage. You know, because, because you know, on the ground that uh, the first shot was still very protective, and again, from a cost benefit perspective, it was a no brainer. Yeah, and, and first, we must happen. say you it guys have. A you guys have had uh, a huge shortage of vaccines, much more than... Yeah, yeah, no, it's ter terrible. And the EU, it's been a total disaster. Uh, yeah. That's another thing. That's, and, and, you know, the, the the medical establishment was up in arms about this. And because of them, 
which is, you know, like literally thousands of people are going to die because of this. I mean, it's, it's literally the case, you know, like I was joking that doctors, you know, meds, medicine kills, you know, it's literally true right now in France. Like it's, 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 it's crazy. So, <laughs> yeah. I want, I mean, I wonder something. You know, I've yeah, something about about with doctors. I mean, I, uh, I, uh, you know, I see them all the time on like, uh, you know, cable news, and I see them on Twitter, and they're often just the most woke people imaginable. And I, you know, I have a theory that I've developed that people going to medicine disproportionately are after status just because met doctor is seen as like such a high status thing for normal people. Well, professor is also a high status thing, but I, I think it's sort of different where uh, there's a certain type who goes into it just because they're, you know, interested in truth. So they're doing theoretical things. Well, people who go into medicine really are after that sort of societal status, a very conventional marker of status. And that makes them maybe not very interested in science and maybe, uh, 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 maybe, you know, prone to accept, you know, whatever group think or whatever uh, fashionable ideology comes, comes along. This is just my theory. This is not, you know, something I've ever rigorously tested. Does that sound, does that sound possible to you? Yeah. Yeah. It, it does sound possible. I mean, we have, it, it translates differently in different cultures, I guess, like in France, I wouldn't say that doctors are very woke. But that's because in France, wokeness is not fashionable, but it's not a marker mm. of status yet. So I, yeah, I totally agree. You know that doctors are very that they're they're kind of people who are very much after social status. And so in France, wokeness won't give you that at least not yet. Uh, yeah. But um, like they will, they will, they're extremely conformist. It's it's really striking. You know, like they. Uh, People at first were criticizing masks, you know, like a, a handful of the right people, you know, uh, putting right uh, in square, scare quotes, uh, were arguing against masks. So they were all against masks. And then suddenly masks became great. So they were all in favor of masks. And now, you know, lockdowns are great. And so they basically want you want people to lock everybody up, you know, for like years, you know, and then and they're all saying the same thing because that's, you know, so zero COVID is like a fashionable fashionable thing like right now in France and not just in France. And so they're all like, they're all pushing zero COVID. And, and yeah, I agree. You know, they're, they're all on, on uh, TV, you know, TV sets to, you know, talking about stuff they have absolutely no idea about. Like it's, you know, they don't know basic math. Like li literally it's like when you, you read the, and I, you know, don't get me started about the yeah, yeah, we yeah, we can we can talk about French and French doctors uh, all day, but yeah, let's get let's use that to uh, transition into talking about your uh, paper. So we brought you on as a um, blogger. Your blog is called War on Science, uh, and you know we'll talk about the name, but we'll let's table that for a minute. But let's get to the let's get to the first post, which is uh, the case against lockdowns. Um, so. In summary, what what is the case against lockdowns? Because the 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 conventional case is, well, the, the conventional case has changed over time. Right. So it started as we're going to flatten the curve. We just heard this over and over again. I remember you were on Twitter and smart people were saying flatten the curve. And that seemed like a reasonable thing at, at the time. Uh, now it's sort of become just reduce the rate and hold on until the, uh, uh, you know, until until everyone or enough people are vaccinated. Can you talk about sort of what the justifications are for lockdowns, how they've changed over the time and um, why, why they're wrong? Yeah. So basically, uh, if you go back to early March of last year, um, I think there was a, I think there was a good case, uh, you know, in favor of lockdowns. And ba the basic case was this, if you measured the way the virus was spreading at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, it implied, uh, uh, it implied that, you know, a, 
a very a very high like a pretty high uh, basic reproduction number which is basically how many people if someone gets infected on average how many people is this person going to infect and you know the higher this thing uh, is the the faster the the epidemic is spreading and the more people are going to end up being uh, infected eventually so when you looked at the data early on um, with such a basic high basic reproduction number it looked as though if we didn't find a way to reduce to cut transmission very quickly the the overwhelming majority of the population would get infected in a matter of, of weeks you know, in a few weeks yeah so this is the key this is the key this is the assumption that they started with so yes, you have yes. exponential growth and the curve just takes off and it just keeps shooting up until everyone or at least enough for herd immunity and then it goes down that that was the assumption we were working under uh in say february and march right yeah exactly that 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 was the very important assumption so it's just like uh if you don't do anything if you know if the if transmission is not is not reduced then you have this exponential growth and you know the thing with exponential life is that you know things are growing at constant rates, so it can go, it can get like very high very quickly. And so in a country like the U.S., for instance, you end up with like uh, you know again in a few weeks the vast majority of the population has been infected. So even if you don't factor in you know the, the what's what hospitals overload is going to do to the lethality rate to the fatality rate. Um, what you get is that, you know, in a country like the U.S., depending on exactly the assumption you make about the basic reproduction number, um, and then there are some other complications I'm not going to talk about, but you end up with, like, easily, like, million people dead. And that's without taking into account hospitals overload. Because, obviously, if the, if the infection fatality rate is 1%, so, like, 1% of the people who get infected eventually die, when they receive proper care, proper treatment in hospitals, it's going to be much higher if hospitals are completely overwhelmed and like it could easily get, you know, potentially to like 10% or something. We don't know. So we didn't know. And, and so, you know, of course, then it's a lot more than 2 million. So we're talking about potentially millions of deaths in a matter of weeks. So that, that was generally scary. And there was, you know, this was not crazy reasoning. You know? Like if this is what would have happened if indeed reduction uh, transmission had not been cut. And so the reasoning at the time was that well, we need to do something to reduce transmission so that, because if we do that, it won't grow uh, exponentially at the same rate. Um, and so we'll do what people call flatten the curve, you know. So in the end, probably about the same people, it's not quite true, but you know, roughly the same number of people are gonna get infected, but at least all of those infections will be more spread out which means that uh, we won't get, you know, we won't get hospitals overload. And so at least the infection fatality rate will stay at, you know, we were thinking 1% at the time and like there's still uncertainty about this, but it wasn't crazy wrong, you know. I think it's probably a bit lower, but, uh, you know, it was a reasonable first estimate. And so, um, you know, I remember at the time the uncertainty was actually more on the, on the fatality rate than on the spread, you know, uh, people, most people basically assume that uh, the, the assumption we're making about how fast this thing would spread in the absence of government intervention were right. So we, again, the, the idea of the lockdown was that, well, we would cut transmission, it would flatten the curve, eventually the same number of people would get infected, but those infections would be spread out a lot more in time, which means that we'd 
we'll avoid, you know, uh, we'd avoid hospitals overload. And so we'll keep the infection fatality rate at around 1%. That, that was a reasonable case. And know, they don't say that. I noticed they don't say that anymore either. They don't, I don't hear flatten the curve, right? It's more along the lines of just keep as many people alive possible until we get to the end of this. Is that your impression of the state of the debate now? Yeah, it is my impression. Actually, you can convince yourself of that uh, very easily by looking at, uh, you know, the frequency of searches on Google. Mm-hmm. Type flatten the curve. And you'll see, you know, you'll see a big peak yeah. during the first wave last time. And then, you know, basically today it's basically nothing. Nobody's using that expression anymore, you know, because that's no longer justification. Yeah. And so what was, what was wrong with the flatten the curve theory? Well, well, why, why was why so, lockdowns an overreaction? So that's, and you know, and I agreed with that reasoning. I mean, I'm not saying, and I, and I wasn't saying at the time that there was no argument against this, you know, because it's lockdowns are a pretty radical thing. You know? It's a, it's a huge uh, infringement on some basic liberties. That's very important. You should you should think very carefully about when you want to do this. And actually, in, in fact, no, I think that it was probably wrong to do this, even with the information we had at the time. So I think I was wrong. But at least there was a, there was a, a decent case in favor of doing that. Now, what's wrong about this is that what we found out uh, after the first wave is that in, in part because of Sweden, because Sweden, you know, went against the grain, you know, decided not to do like other people, other countries, and to forego lockdown entirely. They, they still had restrictions, you know, they closed high schools, uh, they, they forbade, you know, they, they banned uh, public events with like ga- public gathering of more than 50 people. They did this sort of thing, but restaurants stayed open, bars stayed open, uh, there was no curfew, no stay at home orders, n- nothing of the sort. And, and, you know, what we found out is that uh, even in Sweden, despite the absence of lockdown or indeed of any stringent restrictions, uh, cases and death started to fall pretty rapidly, way long before they, they could plausibly be thought to have reached the herd immunity threshold. Because like in the, if, 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 if transmission is not reduced, in a basic epidemiological model, what happens is that it keeps increasing exponentially, as we were saying, until enough of the population has been infected and you reach something called the herd immunity threshold. Um, and and at, at that point, you know, uh, incidence, the number of uh, infections by day start decreasing. And so what we found out is in Sweden is that it was pretty striking that, yeah, sure, maybe you can argue that uh, it happened a bit later and it fell a bit slower, but incidents, you know, fell long before this herd immunity threshold was reached. And, um, and, and you know, and they, they didn't have like, you know, 50,000 deaths in a few weeks as we expected. You know, there was 5,000 deaths. And so what this showed is that uh, transmission can be, con- can be reduced without very stringent government interventions. Because basically, at least that's my theory, my theory is that people voluntarily change their behavior in response to changes in epidemic conditions, which means that, you know, they see that hospitalizations and deaths are increasing, people get scared and they stop, you know, having, you know, at least enough of them stop having huge party with their friends where like they stay, 20 of them stay together in the same room for like hours. And so it slows down transmission dramatically, even if there is no government intervention. And you can argue maybe that there is a, that uh, and you know probably 
probably legal restrictions make some difference. I'm not saying they're making no difference. Yeah, they, they must. I mean, you reduce people. The question is how much. You reduce people's activity. You reduce people's contact with other human beings. And this is a, this is a respiratory disease that spreads between human beings. Uh, you think that, you know, you're, you, you, it's hard to prove. And this is what you do show in the paper. The fact that it's hard to prove shows that the, the effect can't be that large. Because if it was a large effect, like we see with vaccines, you would see very clear cases where places had lockdowns look different from the places that don't have lockdowns. And I encourage everyone to look at this paper and look at, this, uh, look at the graphs there. Um, what you find is it's hard to tell the difference. And so somebody could jump to the conclusion that lockdowns don't work. Um, sometimes, pe- you know, then people do that. But that would be wrong, too. Um, you should start with the prior, you should start with the assumption that probably it works to a certain extent. The question, the, you know, the key question for policy is just how much and what the costs are. Yes, exactly. So, you, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say that it's obvious that they work because actually I remember early on, there was a model that, that was bad in a number of ways, but there was an interesting observation that everyone has forgotten. Like, like if you, you can never totally prevent people from going out of their own homes, you know, um, and so it's it's conceivable that as you lock them down, they spend more time at home, and a lot of infections happen at home. Yeah, but perhaps if you don't prevent them enough from going out, you could. It's 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 logically possible that it could actually increase the uh, yeah. uh, transmission. You're I don't right. think that's true. I don't think that's the most plausible uh, uh, outcome. But I just want to say that you know this is a logical possibility. Yeah, and, yeah. and I guess I guess the only illogical possibility is the effect is zero. <laughs> because yeah. a lot of things would have to work out perfectly for the effect. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's also logically possible, but then it's really, really uh, yeah, very that's tiny a- probability, say. So, yeah. but, you know, yeah, okay. I, I say that just because I, I don't want people to say, you know, it's it's obvious, you know, that's like people should, very few things are totally obvious. Uh, uh, at least when it comes to like this kind of empirical, complicated empirical questions. But I agree, you know, it's, it's likely that they have some effects. Uh, so the question is, how large is this effect? And is it large enough to justify the cost of, of all those restrictions? Yeah. Before we get to the, uh, yeah, we'll get to the cost benefit, but before uh, the, you do some back of the envelope calculations, uh, before we get there, I mean, it, I think it's good to dwell on them, the Sweden case a little bit and, um, you know, look at the American, look at the U.S. states, because you look at a lot of countries. I mean, you look at, uh, you know, just uh, you look at the American states, you look at the EU, you look at places across the world, and in your Wall Street Journal piece, uh, Georgia and Sweden uh, figure heavily in your analysis. In the U.S., there is a, um, you know, there's a lot of controversy because as we're recording this, uh, Texas um, and I think Mississippi just just, uh, lifted all restrictions and their mask, any mask mandates too. Um, and then I think a few days later, Connecticut, which is a blue state, did something similar, although they kept uh, mask mandates, but they they got rid of uh, restrictions on business. And I think they left a curfew, much less uh, of an outcry in the media, uh, because, you know, I think it's I think it's obvious that there's a, a political bias there. Um, but you look at these cases. And so Sweden, I mean, the people who the Swedish uh, approach looked terrible at first because you could look at the number of deaths and they were high. And they were relatively uh, low, particularly in um, the the, uh, the countries surrounding uh, Sweden. Like some, you know, it's, it's like, what's your reference group? This is an interesting question. It's something we've talked about before on Twitter. Where, like, do you compare Sweden to other Scandinavian countries, or do you compare them to the EU? Well, the Scandinavian countries are more similar, but there's only like you know three of them. 
uh, besides Sweden. So that doesn't give you much of a sample uh, to work with. That it doesn't tell you much. Uh, but you know, the the upshot is if you compare the the difference between Sweden and the other ones came early, right? Just talk a little bit about Sweden because I remember the I, the idea was that th- there was some timing in the in the desk and people attributed something to lockdowns. They attributed the fault to lockdowns, which was actually more likely towards behavior. Is that right? Is that is that what you wrote in the paper? Yes. So uh, basically, uh, in Sweden, you know, the, the people have this argument. So a lot of people make this argument that you should only compare Sweden to uh, other Nordic countries. You know, it's it's Nordic neighbors. You know, interestingly, they don't look at its other neighbors, like you know, uh, uh, Baltic countries, but uh, yeah. because they can get the result they want. But you know, and on the ground that you know they provide a, a better counterfactual because those countries locked down during the first wave. This is important because you know I'll come to what happened later, um, and so it's true that you know those countries have had very few deaths, even you know per capita compared to Sweden. And people say, "Oh, that that has to be because of policy," you know? uh, because at the time we only had Sweden to go on. You know, like all, everybody else had locked down. You know, even the U.S. almost every state uh, had some kind of stay at home order. I think only seven didn't. You know. Um, and so people said, you know, that has to be because of the lockdown. And they say, you shouldn't compare uh, Sweden to other countries. You should only compare Sweden with Nordic neighbors because they provide a better counterfactual because they have a similar culture uh, or whatever. You know. uh, the problem with that argument, I mean, there are several problems with that argument. The first one is that we don't actually know what factors really affect the epidemic. So we have no idea that for the factors that are actually relevant for the dynamics of the epidemic, uh, uh, Sweden's Nordic neighbors actually are more similar to Sweden than to than other countries. You know, for all we know, perhaps the UK is actually more similar to Sweden in, in for those in respect to those factors that affect transmission and the epidemic the most. Uh, we have no idea. You know, like that's just just a fact. You know, and and another thing is that we actually know at least during the first wave, we know for a fact that they don't provide a good counterfactual. Because if you do, so one thing you can do, that's one I, something I, do, I did in uh, uh, another uh, paper I wrote, you can look at the timing of death. You can use the data on death, which is much higher quality than data on cases, because at the time, at least, you know, basically no country, countries were not testing at all because there was not enough tests, et cetera. And so what you can do, and I, we, we have some idea about the distribution from, of the time between infection and death. So when you know when people, when, how many people die, you can basically use this distribution to infer, to work backward and infer when those people who died were infected. And so when you do this for Nordic countries, what you can show is that by the time uh, Sweden's neighbor locked down, you know, in mid, around mid uh, March, there was, the epidemic was already at a far more advanced stage in Sweden than in its neighbors. So what this means is that even if you assume that lockdowns have a huge effect, which again, they definitely don't. Uh, and, uh, and you also assume that, you know, you, 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 you run a, you simulate a counterfactual in which Sweden locked down, they still end up, Sweden still end up with vastly more death per capita than its neighbors, just because at the time its neighbors locked down, there was already so many people, so many more people infected in Sweden than its neighbors that, you know, a lot of deaths were already in the pipeline. Basically, it was going to take. It was always going to take longer for cases mm. to go down. Yeah. So, so that's the, 
the key is the attributing the lower death rate in countries like uh, Norway or uh, Denmark to the fact that those countries locked down while Sweden didn't is a fallacy because when those countries locked down, Sweden was already had the high infection rate, which led to the later deaths, right? Yes. So I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying that uh, lock, you know, lockdowns in, in um, uh, you know, Sweden's neighboring countries and other restrictions didn't, didn't lower the death rate in those countries relative to Sweden. I'm not saying that, you know, they probably did to some extent. But my point is that when you use death to infer when people were infected in Sweden and, and other Nordic countries, what you find is that there was already so many more people infected in Sweden by the time its neighbors locked down, that even if it had locked down and you assume you make some crazy assumption about how effective the lockdown would have been, what you find is that there would still have been far more people who would have died in Sweden than in, in other Nordic countries. So you can't, you can't make the assumption that uh, most of the difference come from the difference in policy, because, you know, uh, when you look, you know, even if you assume that uh, you run a, cont a counterfactual simulation where Sweden actually locked down, it had a huge effect, a much larger effect than it actually has, you still end up with far more death, you know, per capita in Sweden than other neighboring countries. Yeah. And so when you look at, in the end, the, you know, the upshot of all this is if you look at uh, deaths per capita in Sweden, and then you compare it to the rest of the EU, there, there's no difference. And that, that's the first chart. Uh, in your in your paper, and it's a, um, and then the uh, and then Georgia is it a case where it's similar where the media lost their minds because they were saying the, the, there's an Atlantic article the uh, you know they were saying this is an experiment in uh, in human sacrifice and guess what Georgia and the rest of the United States is about the same right per capita and you look I mean you look at I was just looking at the American deaths uh, per capita by state. And there's not really any patterns you can discern. Like you'd think like, oh, the red states would be one way, the blue states would be a other way. The worst states are New York and New Jersey. Um, and then I think Massachusetts. So actually like the democratic, you know, more, more liberal states, but you know, who knows? Like, I, I don't think it's policy. I don't think it's necessarily policy. It's probably just bad luck and their international travel and uh, cold weather. And, you know, there's other things too. And then you get like, you know, South Dakota is like number six or eight or something. And the media keeps talking about South Dakota as like the biggest failure when like Massachusetts and, and uh, New York and New Jersey are just, uh, you know, are, are the, are the worst ones. Um, and it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's amazing. You know, you can find so many facts, you know, so-called, <laughs> you know, actual facts that support the narrative that you want to tell, right? And it's all just selective. You have to sort of step back and ask a big question. Okay, is 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 there a big difference between, say, conservative and liberal states in America? Is there a big difference between Sweden and other countries in EU? And we just don't see it. I mean, we, we just don't see it. And you contrast what we see with vaccines. So vaccines is something that has a huge effect. And can you talk about like why you can make easy inferences based on uh, the effect of vaccines versus why you can't for lockdowns? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, uh, yeah, you, you're right about, about lockdown. It's pretty, you know, and other stringent restrictions, it's pretty striking. And like there's, when you look at the data without cherry picking and you just look at basic like descriptive statistics, you just look at charts, you know, that show how the number of cases, death have been changing, you know, and look at the timing of the different restrictions. You know, again, I'm not saying that restrictions have no effect, but it's, if they had a huge effect, it would be much easier to see, like to see them on those charts, you really have to squint or, you know, often you just can't, you know, it's just impossible. And, and 
and you have to you have to bring in like very sophisticated statistics uh, to to actually find an effect. But then you know I don't know if you want me to talk about this right now, but like um, you know the the problem with general like sophisticated statistical techniques is that uh, they they require that you make pretty strong assumptions, and those assumptions they're not things they're not something that you find in the data. You know, those are assumptions that you make so that you have to make them to use those statistical techniques. And yeah. usually, usually you don't have very strong reasons to assume that those things are true. And, and so I think that what you, if you can't, you know, if you can't see, if, if you can't see, if you, if your statistical, your sophisticated statistical analysis finds a huge effect relying on those very strong assumptions. But when you look at simple statistics, you know, descriptive statistics, a bunch of simple charts, and you can't actually see the effect, which is supposed to be huge according to your fancy statistical analysis, then I think you have far more reason to trust what you can see just using a bunch of charts than to believe that those very strong assumptions that, again, you didn't find in the data, those are assumptions that you made because you need to make them, you know, and they may have sounded reasonable to you, whatever, sometimes very often they are not reasonable at all, actually. But you need to make them to use uh, your uh, fancy statistical methods because they rely on them. If you can't, if you can't see this huge effect in in simple statistics, uh, you know you have more reason to trust what you can see in like a bunch of charts than in those strong assumptions, which again don't come from the data. So um, a lot of people, you know, constantly cite studies that allegedly, you know, supposedly found, you know, showed that. That people say that, you know, they showed that lockdown like had a huge effect. I mean, maybe. We'll talk about flout study later. Uh, but, you know, many of them, there are many of them that say, you know, they save millions of lives and blah, blah, blah. They're supposed to have this huge effect on transmission. When you look at simple, a bunch of simple charts, you, you can't see that. You know, it's just not plausible that if the effect were so large, you know, you, you should be able to see it on like a bunch of very simple charts. You now, you compare that with vaccination, that it's really striking. You know? The vaccination, we also expect it to have a huge effect. And, and actually, in the case of vaccination, you know, in, in countries and places that have already started, if you look at age classes that where a lot of people have already been vaccinated, you don't need any fancy statistics to see the effect. Here. I mean, you just plot, you just plot the uh, number of hospitalization by uh, different age groups in Israel, for instance, and you're going to see it. You know, it's going to be clear as day. Like, and and you won't need any like very sophisticated statistical analysis to, to see it. And that's that's what a, a very large effect looks like. You know, then you yeah. can do you feel, you know, I'm not saying I'm not saying that fancy statistical analysis uh, and then like techniques are useless. They're they're important, you know, that you need to use them. They, you will need to use them to estimate this effect more precisely. But the point is that if you're if you expect a very large effect, you know, you should be able to see it more easily without doing all these fancy statistics. Yeah, I mean, I have, yeah, I, I, I'm the same place as you. I mean, I have, uh, you know, we, I'm a, uh, have a degree in political science and we, you know, we learn these statistical methods and we learn the limitations of them. But then when we go out there in the real world, we 
uh, ignore those uh, even limitations, and we just go out there, and you just end up plugging a bunch of numbers, uh, you know, in a in a uh, in a in a spreadsheet or in a uh, data frame, and then you just run a few lines of code, and you've got a regression, and you know, you think that it tells you something about the world, and the you know, there's just there are so many assumptions that go into that. Like, there's you're not forgetting about any other variable, right? Um, that's the omitted variable bias is probably the most important one, or there's not reverse causality, or the you know, there's all these different problems. Problems. And I think you're right in that it's not, it's like what academics do is they do this, these fancy statistics, as you call them, and then they extract like, they extract an effect. And, you know, maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong, but it's like, it's something that's small and you really need to squint and you really need to work hard in order to find it. And if that's the case, first of all, it's probably not that reliable. I mean, you, the, all the assumptions probably don't hold, but even if it is true, you found something very, very small about the world. And what's important is is the is the big stuff by by definition is what are the major effects on you know phenomena that we care about like economic growth or crime or or uh, whatever. Uh, in the case of lockdowns, when you're just looking at the cost benefit, you are you are you know you're collapsing the economy, you're restricting people's freedom in an extreme way, and for that you're going to need something better than just a little you know uh, a a. a um, uh, a p-value of 0.05 or whatever, you know, some kind of small effect in order to justify that. The burden of proof has to be high, depending on the, uh, you know, the 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 the, uh, the restriction on freedom you're calling for. For masks, we can, um, you know, we can we can be a little more, uh, we can be we can we can uh, we can be a little more tolerant of uncertain data because the costs are small. They cost what, like a buck or two, right? And then uh, N95 is I think a little a little more expensive. But basically you're not just shutting people down and keeping them at home and taking kids out of school uh, for months and months for you know a year plus. Uh, so, you know, there's no, you know, I, I people just, I think this is a problem with political discourse more generally. And like, you know, I study foreign policy and the, uh, especially the, um, you know, in the years after 9-11 and like the first decade then, basically they were, uh, there was no discussion of cost benefit. It was like, okay, there was a terrorist attack. There could be more terrorism and whatever we have to do to stop terrorism, you know, it's worth doing, right? And if you stop one terrorist attack and, you know, you start a war and you, <laughs> you lose a trillion dollars, like that's like, that's considered okay because nobody could say, well, you know, maybe we just not worry about the problem because the cost, uh, the, you know, the, what you're proposing we do about it is just worse than the problem itself. Um, so yeah, I mean the, the the lack of cost benefit here is just is just frustrating. I mean every every part of it is just is just crazy. I mean they, they, there seems to be this binary thinking. There's this uh, thinking of okay something works so let's do it. Something doesn't work let's not do it. And there's just there's just no you know subtlety there. And I think that's why economists have done relatively well uh, because they're just trained to think in terms of cost benefit and. That is, I mean, it seems like a small thing, but it's it's huge for thinking about policy because everything has to be cost benefit in the end. You can't have these sacred values. Not a single. We can't lose a single life, uh, right? I mean, do you, do you do you see the do you see it the same way? Yes, yes. I mean, you know, economists. It's kind of a cliche to say that they're 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 they're, all, they're only trade offs. You know, is what they say, and you know, they're right. So that you, I think you're right that they're basically trained to think in those terms. So I agree. You know, that they've been much better about. These sort of things, like and you know, most of the people who have, um, let's say, you know, uh, received, you know, uh, liked, you know, the stuff that I've written on uh, on, on lockdowns, like my uh, my latest report for for CSPI, 
um, a lot of them have been economists, at least among, you know, academics. Like there are lots of economics who uh, would like that because, you know, they, they're trying to think in those terms. And I agree with you. I mean, you know, it's, it's uh, we're talking about huge infringements on people's basic liberties uh, that have a huge cost on like, uh, you know, everybody's focusing on the economic cost. But, you know, before what I do, you know, in the, in the report is um, uh, I don't even take into account economic costs. Let's assume they have no long-term economic costs you know, or, uh, or in even short-term for that matter. Uh, they still have an immediate effect on people's well-being. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm talking from France and here there's, there's been for two months, there's been a curfew at 6 p.m. Like it's, we can't, we're treated like criminals if we go out after 6 p.m. That's, that's, I mean, it's not a normal thing. You know, before you do this, you need some, like you said, you know, the bar, the evidentiary bar should be very high, you know, before you do this to your population. We've been doing this for two months. We have absolutely no idea whether it does anything. I mean, you know, by the only, you know, even like the epidemiologists who advise the French government to acknowledge that, at least they acknowledge, um, uh, on a few occasions that there is no clear way to detect an effect, you know, so they just, but it, they, the governments are playing it by ear, you know, like there's so much uh, pressure, especially from the media, from the media, from medical establishments to do something. So they do something, no matter what it is, you know, no matter how stupid or uh, they ended up, they end up doing things that wouldn't pass a cost benefit test in a million year. And, but, but, you know, they have to do something because people are talking about, uh, oh, my God, you know, the, the hospitals are going to get overwhelmed, you know. And again, you know, when you look at the data, whatever the effects that restrictions, stringent restrictions have on, on transmission, it's not so huge that it's going to make a huge difference on hospitals being overwhelmed. You know, sometimes they get overwhelmed, you know, this happens and this is bad. I'm not saying it's not bad, but it's also bad to lock up, to lock up the entire population at 6 p.m. every day for three months, which is what's going to happen because they said it's going to last another four weeks, four to six weeks. And, you know, usually when they say it's four weeks, it's the double, it's double that. So who knows what they're going to do? I don't think they'll be able to do this. People are going to start to get really fed up. But, but um, you end up doing something like this, which for all we know would have made almost no difference. You know, I mean, it's... Yeah. it's and I'm looking at the back of your envelope uh, calculation. So you say in Sweden... If you assume that a lockdown will save five thousand lives, uh, which is the um, you know which is the total that died in the first wave, so that's ridiculous that a lockdown would save five thousand lives now because people are, more people are getting vaccinated and people are are not naive when facing the uh, uh, the, the virus. Uh, you're saying that the um, uh, you you would have to reduce people's well-being by at most one percent over the next four months in order to cost benefit best benefit test right. And you're and are you even taking into account? I, I can't remember years of life lost. Are you taking into account that the people who die uh, from COVID tend to be older, or is that was that factored in or not? Yeah, it is factored in, but actually, I, I made a very conservative yeah. assumption on this. So uh -huh. what I did is I used this study that uh, estimated the average years of, of life lost for uh, people who died of COVID-19 in Sweden, uh, but it's similar in other places. You know, I mean, it, it varies depending on the country, but it's very similar. So in Sweden, I think the study found it was 9.8 years uh, on average of years of life. So basically, um, what, but, but when you look at how they found this, uh, estimated this number, what they did is that they took the... Uh, conditional, you know, the life expectancy conditional on age and sex of the COVID-19 uh, victims. 
And I assume that all of the people who died of COVID-19 in Sweden would have gone on to live as long as people of the same age and sex do on average. Of course, that's false. Of course, that's false. The fact that they died of COVID-19 is a sign that they were in poorer health than the average of the same sex and age. Sure, right. So this this estimate of 9.8 years uh, uh, average uh, years of life lost, that's at best, that's an upper bound on the actual number. But never mind. What I did is I assume it was 10 years. So, you know, again, I'm making very conservative assumptions. I assume it was 10 years. And then, like you said, I say, okay, let's assume that a lockdown, if, if they did a lockdown, no, because, you know, no, it's, it's, it seems to be um, uh, going down again, or at least uh, I've reached a plateau. But uh, when, I, when we published the report, uh, it was increasing in Sweden again. And so people were uh, calling for, for a lockdown. Say, so, okay, no, it's time to do it. It's going to be a disaster. Uh, even if you assume, so I assume, you know, that it will save 5,000 people, which, as you say, is ridiculous. I mean, 5,000 people is about the same number of people who died during the first wave when most people got infected at the time when the population was behaviorally naive. What it means is that people didn't even know there was a dangerous virus around. They didn't change their behavior at all. Uh, Nobody was getting vaccinated, whereas right now, like, I think half of the population in uh, uh, nursing homes in Sweden have received the first shot of the vaccine. uh, And, you know, it's only going to get only going to increase. So it's, it's ridiculous to think that a lockdown would save five times. You would have to assume it would save about the same number of people as the total number of people who died during the first wave when all those things were, you know, uh, were not, were different, you know, like the people are behaviorally naive, like nobody was getting vaccinated, etc. That's ridiculous. But even if you make this ridiculous assumption uh, and you ignore uh, the other consequences of, of uh, lockdown, you know, in particular, the economic effects. So you just you assume that the only cause of lockdown is the immediate effect they have on people's well-being. Like just, again, the fact that you're forced to, you're locked up in your home, inside your home after 6 p.m. in France, for instance. Uh, you know, if in a lockdown, it's all the time, except when you're authorized to, to, to leave. Uh, it, it reduces people's well-being. It reduces people's well-being. They can't, uh, the fact that they can't go to a restaurant, can't go to a bar, uh, can't meet with their friends, etc. all those things. They, they reduce people's well-being compared to what the Swedes can do right now with far less restriction than we have in France. So if you make this ridiculous assumption that I've made that every person, that on average people who die of COVID-19 would have gone on to live another 10 years and that a lockdown would actually save 5,000 people, even if when you make those ridiculous assumptions, in order for the lockdown to pass a cost-benefit test, you'd have to assume that all of those restrictions would reduce people's well-being for at most 1.1%, I think. So Which in, means that- In concrete terms, yeah. That, that means that uh, if there's, you know, the next 100 days, so it's about 120 days for four months, they wouldn't give yeah. up one day out of, out of approximately- Yeah, one basically you, you have to assume that they wouldn't be willing to, to sacrifice more than 32 hours of the next four months to be able to enjoy the, the semi-normal life that they currently do and, you know, not be locked up all the time, like uh, not being able to send their kids to school, uh, not being able to go to restaurants, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, and who believes that? Yeah. And some people, of course, won't go back to a normal life. You mentioned this too, because they they would be scared. This is what we talk about. This is what you talk about in the paper, that it's uh, that it's uh, this inverted U shape where things get bad. People change their behavior. I think an important point is that human beings vary a lot. 
So some people like me, for example, I, I'm not very, a very sociable, outgoing person. Like if I can't go to parties for a while, you know, I, I can live with that. I sort of, I sort of like working at home and, and just being with my family. And, and you know, that's, that's okay with me. Um, and me, you know, I, I probably would just, you know, be careful of COVID because I, I don't, you know, I, I don't like to go much out anyway. So it's sort of almost an excuse not to go out while other people, you know, I, but I understand there's variation in, in human, um, you know, in human preferences and what, what, uh, what uh, causes well-being. And if I was at a different point in my life, you know, when I was uh, out there looking for a, you know, a girlfriend or, or, or a potential spouse, um, it would have been huge for me to stay home for a year. It would have been, it would have been absolutely night, a nightmarish. Um, especially when you're young, you know, when you're a teenager, I, I, did, I mean, I, I think this is, you know, true for me. I think it's true for a lot of people. Like every year, like I picked up so much, so much in terms of social skills that was, uh, I was better at it than the year before. And I felt this going from my teens to my twenties to my thirties. And you're just taking away all of that. Like I'm a little bit older now, you know, I'm mid thirties. So I, you know, my development is sort of, it, 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 I'm still not developing in the same way I was when I was younger. Uh, but you're just taking away those options from people. You're, you're like taking away the variation. If, if you're desperate, if you need to go to work and you need to send your kid to school, right. You're taking that away. Some people it's okay. They can do homeschooling or whatever. Some people can't, right? And this is and this is the problem with the lockdowns. It's just a top-down, one size fits all for everybody, and for little little con- for little uh, consequence in terms of lives saved. Yes, exactly. I mean, you know, there are so many examples. You mentioned. Uh, I mean, imagine if imagine you're a 38 years old woman who is uh, not yet married but wants to have kids. Yeah, you lost a one year. One year at that age. That's a huge difference. I mean, that's a huge difference. Like it could change our life for the worse, you know, like it's, I mean, for most people, I mean, a lot of people really want kids and like, if they can't have them, that's a, has a huge effect on their well-being for the rest of their life, you know? Like yeah. It's, and it's even, if, yeah, even if you're not a 30 year old, 38 year old woman, even if you're like a man in your, in your twenties, sometimes it's just sort of random if you meet the right person. And let's say, you know, you're in your years between 18 and 38 a year stay home, you know, you'll say it's an even distribution of when you're likely to meet someone who's going to end up being your spouse. Well, you lost five, you know, 5% chance, your chance of getting married is 5% lower. Now, probably that's probably stupid because you'll probably make up for it by going out more later. And so like, you know, you'll, you'll be out desperate. So it's not exactly right, but yeah, I think we're right that the, that the costs are, you know, absolutely huge and, and just, you know, nobody cares. I mean, this is a, uh, this is just, just a failure of, um, you know, it, it's it's like listening to the, you know, it's, as I say, it's a failure of uh, just being able to think logically, just being able to think in cost-benefit terms. It's it's the it's a triumph of the science. If the sense is the science is you listen to one group of people that only factors one thing into account and you just t- listen to them. But in terms of making trade-offs, I think we've done just an absolutely terrible job. Yes, yes, it's very similar. You know, it's, it's very similar to the debate about the, the delaying the second shot of the vaccine when you're facing a shortage. You know, that's it's very similar kind of cost-benefit reasoning that nobody is making except you know a few outsiders, at least outsiders from the from government and the public health uh, uh, profession, uh, basically, uh, and the medical profession. Because at least in France, the doctors are all in for lockdowns. Like if if we listen to them, they they keep us. It keep us locked down forever. It's 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 really crazy. 
Yeah, uh, I think that's right. And I think yeah. it's like, it's sort of like, I remember, again, I keep going back to the war on terror just because it's such a, 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 a to be an emblematic case of uh, the failure to do cost benefit analysis. If you listen to some of these people who are so-called terrorism experts who thankfully don't have as much prestige as doctors, you would basically spend eight hours on the, in the airport. You, you would never, you would never get on your flight. I mean, these people would shut, these people would shut down our lives and that's, and that's, yeah, the, we have to push back against that form of, you know, so-called expertise. Uh, but anyways, I want to, I, I want to to one uh, something that's uh, uh, slightly different, which is uh, okay. well, it's the same can topic. Can I, can I just add one thing on this? Sure, go uh, ahead. I think there's an interesting thing here. You know, I, a friend of mine uh, made this comment on Twitter a few weeks ago. We used to we used to to look, you know, to read the books about say uh, Maoist China, and we see those people do absurd things. They, they make absurd things for ideological reasons, and and we used to think, you know. This makes no sense. You know, this could never happen here because, and I'm not saying, you know, lockdown is uh, comparable to the horrors of Maoism. What I mean is the comparison I'm making is the absurdity. You know, we're like in France, we're doing this absurd things like the, the curfew at 6 p.m., which everybody admits that whatever effect it has, it's so small that we can't, we can't even detect it reliably. But we're still doing it for three months, locking up the entire population, like 60, 67 million people for three months. Even though, by their own admission, we're not—they don't even know if it does anything—and and it's interesting. Now we have a glimpse of how really absurd things can can be done, you know, in governments. When just because there's some kind of like there are lots of like collective action problems and like wrong, like messed up incentives, and and you end up with this kind of thing where people do—you have entire governments, entire bureaucracy administrations doing like all working together to do this completely absurd thing. And, and, you know, it just happens. And I, I you know, I, I found that like, I found that interesting because I did used to think, you know, I, I, several times I've read about Maoist China or like Stalinist Russia, Soviet Union and thinking, you know, how, how could this ever happen? It just seems so weird. And now I see that it can, it, this sort of absurdity can happen, like <laughs> irrational behavior yeah. uh, on a very large scale. I, I realize how easily, you know, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I have, yeah, some thoughts on that. I mean, the, uh, I, I think it, uh, certain aspects of our elite culture are just as crazy as Maoist China or Stalinist Russia. We are lucky because they do not have the physical uh, courage and true conviction of their beliefs that the people in Maoist China uh, and, the, and the Bolsheviks had. Um, and also uh, they tended to be, you know, they tended to be, um, I think there's something about the feminization of, of the left which is um, which makes it less inherently violent, but you know we can get to that. So we can get to that some other time. I don't I don't worry about you know femi uh, feminist genocide or anything like that. I think that's that's had an effect on the left in general. But a uh, topic for another day. Um, I just wanted to talk uh, quickly about um, uh, East Asia because you don't uh, somebody uh, on Twitter mentioned you don't you don't talk about East Asia, but I think it helps your case. And what I find fascinating about East Asia and how they've dealt with COVID is you've had an experiment where you've had. Uh, a very a variety of approaches. So you had China, where it started, which was just a totalitarian lockdown, and they killed the virus. They just they just destroyed it. I mean, it's not it's not there anymore. It's barely there anymore. Uh, you have Taiwan and South Korea, which are democracies and aren't as totalitarian, but have really good contact tracing, um, and they seem to have more reasonable governments than we do. Like for example, they didn't get masks wrong. Uh, apparently, they were they were recommending masks from the beginning. But then you have Japan which did basically nothing, which sort of behaved like a Western government. 
And each of these countries had, um, each of these countries basically had very, very low COVID deaths compared to the West. Uh, how do you think about that? And what do you think can explain that? Yes, it's, it's very mysterious. I, I, I don't claim to have an explanation. I mean, I have some hypotheses, but none of them is fully satisfying. Um, people, so people say, and it's not true that I don't talk about this in the report. I do actually talk about this a little. You know, it's certainly not a focus because I'm focusing on what's going on in the West and uh, uh, Europe and the US particularly. But I do talk about, so, so one thing I talk about is like the, the contact tracing explanation. So people assume that, uh, first of all, it's not, you know, countries like South Korea or Taiwan are not really good cases, you know, to support lockdown because, well, they didn't lock down. Yet. So I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of a very basic argument here is that it's kind of weird to use countries that never locked down to say that you should absolutely lock down. And that's just, I don't know, maybe I don't understand basic logic, but uh, it doesn't strike me as a very good argument. But um but people explain this, you know, they say, you know, the reason why South Korea and Taiwan say uh, uh, we're able to basically eliminate the virus is because of their amazing contact tracing. And look, I'm, I'm not saying that this, I'm not even saying this is, this is false. You know, all I'm saying is that people have no evidence whatsoever that this is true. All they know is that those countries didn't lock down. They were able to more or less eliminate the virus. And they also do contact tracing. But it doesn't mean that uh, contact tracing is what does the explanation here. And I'm very skeptical that it actually does because, you know, there are other countries in East Asia that have man managed to basically suppress circulation of the virus. Countries like Vietnam, uh, Thailand, uh, Myanmar, um, Cambodia. And look, I'm willing to believe that a country like South Korea which has uh, a, a, an excellent uh, health infrastructure, which is very rich. You know, it's, it's per capita GDP is comparable to like Western European countries and the US I and mean, the US is higher, but um, so I'm willing to believe that a country like that uh, can do something really good with contact tracing. Again, I, I'm very skeptical that this is even in South Korea, that this is what does most of the work, but at least it's something I can believe, you know, even though we, we don't have any clear uh, evidence that this is what what happened, but then you go to countries like Myanmar, or Cambodia, or Thailand that are like one sixth or like one one tenth or even more than that of the GDP per capita of a country like Germany, which I know has invested a lot in, in contact tracing, but still wasn't able to prevent the the virus to go wild. And I'm like, really, am I supposed to believe that those countries have such amazing? You know, they don't even have enough money to do mass testing. You know, but I'm supposed to believe that they were able to basically suppress the virus thanks to their awesome uh, contact tracing. I mean, I don't buy it. And I don't think anyone rational should buy it. So I don't know exactly what happened. One hypothesis I have, but it's kind of an hypothesis. Well, I mean, one thing. I mean, one thing you could say is that it helps your case because policy seems not to matter. You have these wildly different policies and you have these wildly different results. I'll just look, uh, looking at the uh, numbers. So per, uh, uh, so per million people, South Korea had 32 deaths per million. Japan has had 66. So Japan has is twice as bad as Korea, but it's still very low. And if you look at China, it's three. Now China, I think is impressive because it started there. So they, they, should, have, they should have been hit the hardest. And they had absolutely no warning. And people say you can't believe the data. Well, I mean, I think they're. I think that's that's wrong. I think you can most, for the most part, believe them. And then you have Taiwan, which is zero point four, 
and you have Vietnam, which is 0.36. So all these countries, I mean, they're just, you look at the map and they're the same color. They're all white and our world and data and Europe and America are all red or, or black red because white is lower but there's massive differences in that but the but the point is they all did really well and maybe because japan didn't have as good contact tracing as korea maybe it had twice as many deaths but japan still had a lot fewer deaths than i think just about anywhere in the anywhere in the west um and you know that 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 tells you something interesting the uh the uh uh, policy doesn't seem to matter that much. It, it, at least it doesn't matter as much as whatever's making the West different from the Far East. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, even Japan, we say, I, I think we shouldn't insist on the fact that it's twice as much as South Korea because really the absolute increase is, is totally negligible. You know, I mean, it's, yeah, twi- exactly. it's twice as much of something very small. So, you know, it's, it's just doesn't really matter. Uh, but um, But for sure, you know, it was a bit more and yeah, I totally agree that there is this like, I mean, you know, when you look, I've read some stuff about what Thailand has been doing. There's absolutely no question that we did vastly more, you know, governments did vastly more, use vastly more costly methods to to fight the, the virus than they did. And they, they still like their outcomes are so much worse, you know, it's just so, so, you know, the, the, the idea is policy, but I have to say, you know, that also, it's also interesting in Europe. I was talking about how during the first wave, um, you know, uh, the Nordic neighbors of Sweden did much better, but that uh, this is what you would have expected. You know, even if Sweden had locked down it, or locked down at a huge, uh, it was already much more uh, like the epidemic was already at a far more advanced stage in Sweden than its neighbors. So you would have had a lot of more death anyway. Uh, but what's interesting about Nordic countries is that uh, some of them are actually kind of like East Asian countries in terms of outcomes. Uh, not, it's not as extreme, but it's still extremely low. Uh, in Finland, is actually not much higher than Japan. I think. Yeah, let me let me look um, at let me actually uh, pull this. Let me let me let me just uh, go over this because I have this map in front of me. So sixty, we said six, six Japan, thirty uh-huh. Korea. Uh, then you go to uh, Finland. It's one forty, right? So you have you go another twice as much as Japan. You go to Norway. 116. Uh, yeah. uh, but the, yeah, but I mean, these, these aren't big numbers when you look at the difference. So Poland, right, just to take another country at random, 12, 1,204 uh, per uh, per million, right? France, 1,370. So 100 between yeah. Japan and Norway is, is not a big deal yeah. because these, these are 10, 11, 12 times as much. In but, these yeah. And, and here's the thing, you know, what's interesting is that Finland, sure, they locked down. Everybody's focusing on the fact that that during the first wave they locked down, which they did. But since then, they've basically been doing nothing. I mean, unlike many other places, they've learned their lesson. And, the, you know, if you go to Finland right now, you can go get drunk in bars, you know, until midnight if you want, you know, like, and you can, you can, you can go to restaurants and everything is open, you know, everything is open in Finland. Yeah. And, and, and nothing is happening. Absolutely nothing is happening. So, you know, People who say, you know, because people keep making this point, you know, this comparison between Sweden and its neighbors, like I said, for the first wave, it's, we know, we know for a fact, they're not a good, they're not a good, they don't provide a good counterfactual. But if you look, if you look at what happened after the first wave, well, you know, this comparison is actually a very strong argument in favor of my view, you know, that policy doesn't make a huge difference because, you know, if you look at Finland, everything is open, nothing is happening. Clearly, there are other factors here. So, That's, so yeah, let's talk about what, what are those other other factors. So what I have, you know, a theory um, that 
the uh, and I think there's some literature to support this, that the cases are disproportionately spread by a few super spreaders, that there are a few people, it's like crime. Uh, a small portion of the population is responsible for a disproportionate share of the crime. And if you have a population that has less dysfunctional behavior, this is my theory, you will end up with, um, you will end up just with less COVID because it's not linear. It's not like an aggregate of how everyone behaves. It's like, how do the, how do the worst uh, behaving people in your society behave as far as, you know, sort of what you could call disease hygiene, uh, as far as, you know, good best practices. And I think there's just, we just have a lot more poorly behaved pe people in, in the West than they do in East Asia. And that's consistent with a lot of other data, like drug use and crime and other things like that. Does it, does that strike you as possible? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, this, it, it strikes me as plausible that this could do some of the work. I mean, you know, something has to be has to explain this, and it it can be policy, and it has to be. So there has to be other factors. At least it can be policy alone. Uh, uh, but you know, you look at Finland. I mean, you know, the the Finland is one of the countries where per capita people drink alcohol the most. So I don't know, you know, how when you know when they get like really hammered, you know. I mean, I'm not sure there are not lots of people who behave responsibly, and I don't know, and they have nothing. So. But, you know, the explanation doesn't have to be the same in, 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 in every place. You know, maybe in Finland it's that they get very little traffic, you know, tra international travel, and maybe that plays a huge role, you know, in, in driving the epidemics. I don't know. Um, uh, I don't know, you know, in some, in some East Asian country, I, I suspect, you know, like Japan, I suspect that part of the explanation is that, so like I said, you know, my, my, my main view is that uh, people's voluntary uh, behavior changes in response to changes in epidemic conditions is what driving, what's driving most of the dynamics of, of the epidemic. And m one of the explanations I have in mind for countries like Japan, it's kind of an explanation by default, but it's, it, you know, again, something has to be an explanation, is that the response function of, uh, of the population in those countries is just very different from, uh, like they're much more risk averse, say for instance, and so they tend to avoid like gathering uh, with with their friends a lot more than uh, than uh, people in the West do, and so that's how uh, voluntary behavior end up reducing. Trans you know, voluntary behavior changes in response to the the pandemic ends up reducing transmission a lot more in those countries than it does in Europe or the U.S. I mean, that's that's you know, I'm thinking you know, if it's not, I mean, this is plausible and like uh, and, and you know, it's it's. It's not mutually exclusive your explanation. I mean, it's also the case that because you're right that you know, like, uh, um, like a, it, it does seem that very few people end up like most people get infected, never go on to infect anyone, and uh, then those who do end up infecting a lot of people. Uh, and so it's probably right. You know, it makes sense that uh, the the larger your uh, really bad behaved. Uh, share like a subpopulation is uh and the more badly behaved it is then the the worse it's going to be in terms of like how easily the the virus is going to be yeah the the uh spread and yeah the behavioral thing is is very plausible to me because when i moved i never lived in an area with a lot of east asians but then i came out to um study at ucla and i would walk around campus sometime and i would see people in masks 
and I never saw people wear masks in public before. Um, and I would uh, see these people and I'm like, oh, they must have like a disease. They must be like somebody who has really something bad and they must be something unique. But I saw a lot and it was sometimes around the UCLA Medical Center. So I thought maybe they're just people getting treatment at UCLA Medical Center and they're otherwise sick people. And this is why they're, they're wearing the mask. But then I noticed it was I never saw a white person wearing a mask. I never saw a Hispanic person wearing a mask. It was always Asians, right? And I was, I, I, it turns out that a lot of uh, people from China and Korea just wore masks in Los Angeles because it's a, uh, it's it, the the pollution is better than it was like 20 years ago. But it's a it's a dry area, so apparently the air is is worse than it is in a lot of other places. And it was just completely normal for them to wear masks. So like masks around um, in the LA area, they sold out pretty uh, early. Uh, because, you know, it was just so completely normal for them to wear masks. And I went to a Korean supermarket once and they gave us gloves. I mean, they gave us gloves at like the beginning of the pandemic. I'd never seen that before in any other store in the U.S. since, um, you know, since this pandemic started. And they did a, like a quick temperature ch check where they, they, uh, uh, they, sh they shot you with the, you know, with the, with the temperature gun. Um, and I was, I was, you know, just taken aback by this. So, so who knows? I mean, it's hard to measure these things. It's impossible to prove these things. But what you have is the data. I mean, what you just have is this map of the world where East Asia is just completely light and then Europe and America are dark. And there must be something deep there and it can't be policy. Exactly what you said, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's important to acknowledge that clearly there is a lot we don't understand about this thing. And one thing that annoys me with the, the dominant discourse, you know, that policy explains everything is that it, it gives the falsely gives the impression that this is not true, that we actually, we do understand very well what's going on. And we clearly don't. I mean, my God, you know, if we, if, if we could really, you know, if we understand things as well as the prologue on crowd tends to uh, uh, claim, then how come all of the projections, you know, in, in most countries have been so deeply wrong, you know, recently, um, like in, in France, you know, and maybe I'll write about this, but uh, there is a study that came out that's been used by the, the, the by epidemiologists who advise the French government. So the, 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 the main one, the main epidemiologist in the scientific council that advises the government, the French government, and that finds that uh, the, the British variants, you know, uh, is like 59% uh, more trans transmissible than the wild type, which I don't believe for a second. You know, it's just like, it's it's basically impossible to reconcile that with other data. I mean, they do get this estimate from data. Um, it's basically about how quickly uh, the, the, the share of the infections uh, by this variant uh, has increased, you know, and that's, it's true, it's very puzzling. You know, it has been increasing fast, everywhere it's been introduced, but, uh, but then, you know, there's something they don't do in their paper, but which, which I did, you know, like if you, if you look at what their model implies in terms of what the uh, incidence curve would look like right now. And basically right now, if, if based on their model, there should be over 100,000 cases per day in France. Actually, there is only 20,000. It hasn't been increasing at all. So clearly their model is wrong. I don't know what explains why this variant has been increasing like that, but instead of just assuming, taking at face value their results, they should, they should make allowance for the fact that clearly there's something they're missing here. And we do, they don't understand something and not pretend that they do, but that's what those, the, the pro-lockdown uh, people tend to do. You know, they tend by, by saying it's all about policy. They're kind of like talking as if 
we there wasn't so many things we don't understand about this, but East Asia or even places like Finland, clearly they show that there's something, there's a lot we don't understand. We have to acknowledge that. Yeah, and you're right. And, you know, we just, this is a longer discussion. I think something we'll be talking about in the future is just the uh, the incentive structure of academia. What do they judge you on when you go out for an academic job? They're looking at your CV and the CV is the number of publications and where they're placed. And everyone is playing the same game. And the people who are reviewing your uh, publications are themselves don't care about your publication. They care about their own publication. Uh, they care about if you cite them. That's what the, that's what the, that's what they that's what they worry about, and that's what the system is selecting for. So they might say during the review you didn't cite you know Johnson and Johnson. You know you can guess usually Johnson is the is the reviewer. Uh, and so they're just you know passing along. They're just uh, they're just producing sort of just these. Uh, you know, the stacks and stacks of paper, I guess not paper anymore, whatever, you know, computer, <laughs> computer and, uh, information data. And they're just playing this game and they're building the CV and no one is checking, no one is incentivized to go, you know, and somebody might check something at some point, uh, but the vast majority of it just never gets checked and it never gets reasoned about it, it never gets put in its proper context. It just becomes science. It shows up on Google Scholar. It has, you know, 800 citations after it. it, it it's official. It, it's gospel at that point. Um, and, you know, the whole system is just screwed up. This is not about epidemiology. This is not about medicine. This is the way we produce and spread knowledge. There is just something very off about the incentive structure, and it's something that we've got to fix. Yes, yeah, I totally agree. And I, actually, one of the things I'm very excited about uh, being part of CSPI, I know, as a research fellow, is that I I think, you know, that's that's a place where we can do some really serious post-publication uh, review, basically, where we can look at things in a more serious way than it gets looked at in the pre-publication peer review system, which where, as you said, you know, the, the whole incentive structure is completely messed up. And, you know, if you, if you look at this paper that I just told you about, you know, that, that they just accept, you know, the, the guy did an interview in Le Monde, which is the most prestigious French newspaper, saying, oh, yeah, no, the... Uh, the, the new variants, like this British variants, is definitely like between 50 and 70% more transmissible. It's been scientifically proven and blah, blah, blah. You know, like I said, it's, you, you do a simple check on this paper and you see that it makes no sense with the data we have. There are more data. You know, recently I calculated the uh, correlation between the share of the variants in each French department and the, the weekly growth rates of the number of cases in those departments. And it's literally zero. Now, this guy is telling me that this thing is like 60% more transmissible and it didn't even occur to him that it might be weird, you know, not to find even a little bit of a correlation between the share of that variant. And, you know, it's absurd. I mean, how can, how can you publish this? How, how can this be taken seriously? So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I do anticipate we'll talk a lot more about this in the future, but that this, this pandemic has also been a great, it has, uh, at least you have eyes to see, I think it has... Uh, shed a lot of light on the whole process, you know, on how messed up it is. And there's, there's a lot to be said about this. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a great, uh, that's, that's a great transition. So moving away from the lockdowns, I mean, I just wanted to take advantage to get you here because I got you here to talk about um, uh, the culture wars in France, because you are, you are a proud Frenchman. Um, and you're interested in these, uh, this political correctness, these wokeness, these uh, social issues. And, 
people, I mean, when I was, uh, you know, like 10, 15 years ago, liberals used to point to Europe as this sort of liberal utopia because they cared most about, mostly about, like they thought, they thought about Iraq and Europe was like, you know, liberal on Iraq and Europe was also liberal on uh, the things they cared about, which was more economic issues. So they had like, uh, you know, universal health care and stuff. And now there's an idea that basically there's all, you know, there's all this far right stuff going on in Europe. And France in particular has been really, I mean, there's like Hungary and Poland and they're doing something that the media really is, you know, liberals are really angry about, but they're not, they're not culturally that important. Uh, but France is, is seen as culturally very important. And Macron has been sort of just having a conversation, a running conversation with the New York Times. And the way the New York Times tells it, now I, I, I would uh, caution people against interpreting uh, the um, uh, they're basing their understanding of a country based on what the New York Times says. Often that's all we have. Um, but, you know, imagine if you were understanding America through just New York Times articles, it would be very, very distorted. And so there's no reason to think it's better in other countries. But this is what we're getting from the New York Times on France, is that basically Macron is has declared a war on political correctness. He's declared war on uh, uh, feminism. Well, not so much feminism, but, uh, but at least Islamism and uh, sort of white guilt and affirmative action. Well, they don't have affirmative action, but like the ideas behind Black Lives Matter, the tearing down historical statues, he's just drawn a line there. Um, and this is something that is angering, you know, this sort of activist class that's more American influenced. Um, what, uh, just, you know, you're in Paris right now. What, is, what, is the, what does it look like from there? So um, I, I think one crucial difference, with what is true is that the elites in France are, you know, wokeness, this whole like great awakening, I like this expression a lot, um, uh, thing has not been, at, at least so far, I'm not sure it's going to last, you know, but so far it hasn't been as successful in like basically con conquering the elites uh, in France as in the US, not nearly as successful. So a lot more people in the media elite, you know, political elite, just don't want to do anything with this stuff in France. Whereas in the US, you know, it's been, it's been incredible how fast they have been um, won over by this. So that includes Macron. You know? Macron is definitely not, he's sincerely not woke, you know, um, but uh, where people have, a, I think, mistaken perception is that they see, you know, so especially on the left, you know, even in France, this is true to some extent, but, <coughs> pardon me, uh, certainly in the US, people have this impression they see as, it's like they think that Macron has basically became, become some kind of like far-right guy who's known a crusade against Islamism and feminism and, uh, and uh, wokeness or whatever you want to call it. Um, and that's that's widely exaggerated. Basically, Macron is um, is like a, a typical center left centrist. You know, is is really center left on some things and center right on others. But uh, is a typical French centrist. And it's just that typical French centrists find all this wokeness stuff ridiculous. But it's not like he's not going to do anything serious about it. So like they're talking like the the French minister of the of research of higher education has been like talking about doing some investigation. I can tell you nothing's going to happen. You know, I mean, they're going to make some noise because that's Macron is a lot of what Macron is doing. He makes some noise, you know, because it's, he knows that there is a good, like it pays off electorally speaking, but, um, but the truth is that wokeness is, is uh, gaining, is making very quick gains in uh, French academia. And this is going to continue because they're heavily influenced by this stuff that's coming from the U.S. Um, and it is coming from the U.S. You know, I see people who think they're smart, you know, making fun of like, oh, 
the uh, the French conservatives are scared of this stuff that comes from the U.S., whereas in the U.S., you know, they're scared of this uh, French theory and stuff like that. Well, both things are true. You know, if you think you're smart because you think that there's a contradiction here, honestly, you're just not as smart as you think. I mean, it's true that a lot of this stuff in, in the U.S. has been influenced by French intellectuals and know it's coming back. Where's the contradiction? You know, there is none. You know, I'm, it's, it's terrible but, that people can see these things. But um, so... Uh, like I said, this wokeness stuff, it's gaining grounds rapidly uh, in French academia. The difference with the US is that it's having a much harder time to go outside academia. You know, it's, they're starting, you know, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to work in journalism, but even there, it's not going to work to the extent it worked in the US, or at least it will take, it will take longer. Um, so that's the main difference of the US. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that uh, wokeness has not been extremely successful in academia. I mean, it's still like, you know, French academia is still much less work than uh, the US academia. American academia is going to take longer there too. But if you look at young young academics, uh, graduate students, et cetera, in France, uh, I, I mean, there's probably, there's definitely less work people even among them than in the US, among the same, even among the same like age group and occupation. But still, it's, it's, it's definitely growing. Uh, the difference is that in the U.S., basically, uh, all of a sudden, you know, large swath of journalism of even corporations uh, got into this stuff, and and this has not happened in France. And I think I I'm, I wouldn't say that it won't happen eventually, but uh, certainly right now it's nothing like the U.S. And if it does happen eventually in France, it will it will take longer. I mean, you know, if, if academia gets totally uh, taken, it's take, taken over by this stuff. I'm pretty sure eventually this this will happen in France too. But uh, that's the difference. So Macron is 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 doing this stuff. You know, it, it's it's genuine. Again, he it, he doesn't get wokeness. Like again, he's a traditional French centrist. All this stuff to him is nonsense. I mean, it is nonsense for any person who's not crazy. But um, but uh, he genuinely doesn't get it, and he, he finds that ridiculous. I, I do not doubt that he's sincere in this way. But I also do not doubt that it doesn't have the political will to go to war, you know, uh, against wokeness in academia. So he's going to make a bunch of noise. His minister is going to make a bunch of noise. They're going to set up some kind of commission. Maybe they won't even set it up because there was an outrage, an outcry from uh, in academia. Uh, but maybe they will set it up, you know, and this thing will do a report that nobody will read and nobody will care about it. And the, the wokeification of French academia will continue apace. Because that's what's going to happen. And and then everybody's think is in the you know on the left, uh, even in France, but especially in the U.S., is talking about Macron as if you know it was going to be a new Orban or you know it was going to completely crush you know wokeness in academia and, and and you know in other places. And you know this is just not going to happen. People who think that they just don't understand who Macron is and what 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 he's likely to do is he's never going to do that. Yeah, I think an interesting difference between the American and the French situation is you said, well, you know, France, you know, Macron is not going to do anything. In part, he doesn't have to do a lot to be better off than the U.S. because it is so institutionalized in law here. Um, so in France, you know, we talk about uh, the abuse of science. In the U.S., one of the worst things we have is uh, uh, data gathering on, on racial uh, uh, racial differences. And we have racial data on everything. And you find disparities in every single thing. And this is the justification for affirmative action, diversity, and all of that. In France, they don't even have 
uh, they don't even keep statistics right on these on these racial differences in like crime. So you can't even figure out like how, what percentage of France is is black or or North African. Like you you can't you can't you can people have done unofficial estimates, but you can't do that directly. And so in America, the whole project of racial equality has this sort of scientism around it and that, oh, we're researchers and we have all this racial data and now there's so much we can do with it. And the government has uh, levers with which to do about it. It has anti-discrimination law that it applies very widely and then says it's disparate impact. And that has a downstream cultural effect. In France, if you don't have that sort of legal, bureaucratic, so-called scientific structure, uh, there's just a lot less that the, the, the culture is not less influenced by, and there's a lot less that government can do to sort of, um, you know, like attack standards and like standardized tests. It's harder to do because when they do it here, they'll say, oh, it's because of a racial disparity. In France, they don't even have the data. So, you know, they, they don't know that there's a difference between Chinese and African French and, and, and white Frenchmen. There's, there's just no data at all. And that prevents what you can do. I think it's a good example of like, a, a place where less knowledge is good because the way the knowledge and the data is used is just abusive and it's a power grab for the government and power grab for certain uh, uh, cultural people with uh, certain cultural views they want to force on everyone else. So, uh, I mean, I'm in broad agreement with what you say. I do want to nuance it a bit because unlike what most people think, we do actually have data on this. On, on this. Oh, then, then it's hopeless. So basically, so a lot of, most people think it's illegal to collect that data on race uh, in France. And that's not quite true. You know, the, the law allows research for research purposes. Uh, it, it allows research to be done into this. So it's just that it's mostly not done for cultural reason, although this is changing. So we have very few data, but we do have data, you know, like, I mean, uh, we do have data on this. Uh, it's nothing like the US. So this is true, you know, like the US, we and and yeah, another we thing is, census. we know every city, every town, the demographic. Yeah, yeah. And, and, like so, for instance, in France, the census doesn't ask about your race, and this is probably not going to change anytime soon. It that you know, um, and uh, and you know, the the state, you know, no government institution except against research institutes uh, collect data on this. It's, this is actually legal, so the the state cannot. Uh, you know, store data on the, the 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 citizens. You know, based on race, and so we're never going to have a lot of the stuff. Or at least, at least as long as this is true, we're never going to have the sort of things that you have in the U.S. And I think it's true that it has a huge effect on the legal superstructures, and, and this this has downstream effect on culture, etc. And this is definitely true. But I just uh, we do have data on this, and uh, it's a lot for research purposes, but for cultural reasons which again, you know, it's, it's everything, all of this is influenced, you know, those cultural, the culture is affected by the lack of, of legal structure that, like you said, you know, it has this, this legal structure has downstream effect on, uh, on culture. And then, you know, it, this is a process that feeds itself, you know, in, in France, you know, uh, it's, it's a lot for research purposes, but for the most part, people don't do it. They don't collect data on this because there is this taboo about race in France. And so, which, you know, I, I'm of two minds on this. Like, I mean, I agree with you that it has definitely some fortunate consequences. Uh, and and in general, I'm very, I really don't like uh, this model of a society that's divided in different communities and, uh, you know, with strong, very strong, like cultural barriers between them. And you, you, you kind of like politics is about arbitrating between those different competing interests. Uh, that's, I mean, I know to some extent it's true in every society, but I think that when race, 
gets into the picture, you easily end up with like some kind of caste society. And that's not the model of society I, I really like. You know? so, Can I tell you an example in the US? What we don't collect is religious data. And there was a big thing about Islamophobia like 10, 15 years ago. And I think Islamophobia is more of a real thing in America than a lot of the uh, the, uh, the other things that people woke talk about. But there is very little government initiative on Islamophobia just because we don't have data on how many Muslims there are, whether Muslims are being disproportionately stopped by the police or they're being disproportionately, whatever. We, we just don't collect the data. So it's just a nice example within the United States about how not having the data uh, just, just helps you out. I, I think that uh, you, you would find all kinds of interesting religious differences in the US if we collected that data, we just do not. Yeah, no, that, that's true. I mean, again, it's, it's, there is no doubt that things would be very different in France if uh, the state started collecting all, all this data and like all those disparities would, which, you know, would show, but like we, we do have, uh, you know, basically those data exist. I mean, not, not nearly as much as in the US, but um, there, are, there are academic papers that you can read where you're, you, you know, I have some of those data on my computer. Like you, you, you have- yeah. I guess the sense is having authoritative coming from the government is different because everyone can just say, I mean, I think you can, you can sort of uh, gaslight, you can, you can, you, you can, uh, if you're on the other side, you could always say, well, that person is just full of it. That person didn't measure. It creates some uncertainty, uh, less so in the United States. But um, yeah, let me ask you this. Um, so the, um, uh, let me just add something here. Like another thing is that, that to go in like uh, to, to uh, push the same idea that you were pushing is that like a very big difference. Again, we have those data, but in France, so it's legal for research uh, institution to collect it, but the government can't act on this data. So that's a crucial difference. You know? oh, okay, like the yeah. government is never going to have to, is ne- well, you know, when I say it can't act on this data, it's never, you know, if, if research, if there is a research paper that finds that, you know, uh, there's a disparity in school, which, you know, we do have such papers between, say, the, the descendants of uh, North African immigrants and, uh, and, and other French people, uh, uh, sure, people can say that's because of racism, you know, but the there's not going to be any uh, affirmative action because for there to be affirmative action it would have to be the case that the government uh is allowed be allowed to collect data on this and use it to you know uh, favor some applicants you know to some state schools for, uh, over others and this can't happen because this is illegal collecting data for research purposes that's not illegal but this is so that's so that's definitely true that i think this is a source of of many differences in in that regard between france and the us yeah, it's interesting. And I think for people in the U.S., you know, they might want to think about the legal changes and the legal sort of uh, avenues you could take and the, the law and the policy that you could pull on to, to, to help deal with these issues and make us maybe a little more like France. Uh, let me ask you this. Do you think that Macron, I mean, one thing that I, get, uh, I like about uh, Macron's commentary is that when you portray the resistance to wokeness as a foreign invasion, I think that helps with the resistance because otherwise it's portrayed as what? It's women and people of color are being oppressed and they're just, you know, they're from the bottom and they just want a chance and like, you know, patriarchal racist French society won't give it to them. When if you portray it as, you know, we're friends and we're being colonized by the Americans on the other side of the world, it makes it seem like, and which I think this is the true model of the world, it's, 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 a, it's a source of imperial power and people will resist imperialism and foreign domination do you think that that's like you know that's that's sort of a positive framing does that does that help fight it within france oh it definitely helps i mean anti-americanism is very strong in france it's still strong today even though we we are totally colonized i mean you know this this model is that's what you're saying i mean it's true you know that's that's this thing is coming from the u.s it is american influence and it is part of the uh 
it's like basically soft power, like imperialism from like a decadent empire, you know, so it's why I like to, to see it, you know, but it is, that's, that's what it is. And uh, anti-Americanism is very strong in France. So if something gets portrayed in the media as coming from the US, you know, being like some American influence uh, and like uh, opposed to some traditional values that we have in France, oh yeah, you can bet that this will help. So I do think this framing is politically useful to fight this stuff. And, you know, it just happens to be the case that in addition it's true. So that's even better. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and maybe maybe having sort of the U.S. become more openly woke, where if you say wokeness came from the U.S., but uh, Trump is president, it's still true that wokeness is coming from the U.S., but it sort of looks like that Trump is like, you know, obviously a, uh, obviously a completely different. Um, and so, yeah, um, it's, it'll, I mean, we have a lot of, you know, we'll have, uh, it'll be interesting to see, um, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I mean, they, uh I, I'm amazed. I mean, there was a story about Japan. Japan is always, you know, held up as sort of this place that resists um, uh, the, you know, sort of Western cultural influences. It's own unique thing. And they had a, a guy who was uh, on the Olympic committee and he said something like women talk too much during the meetings and he apologized. And the New York Times was like, how could this be a country where he just apologizes and they move on, you know, and then he gets fired. And then the New York Times takes a victory lap and you're like, well, you know, Japan, Japan has fallen. And you, you wonder what's going to, you wonder what's going to sort of, uh, what's going to, you know, maintain itself. I think, you know, I think that, the, you know, uh, you know, you sometimes when you have political difference, I see in Russia and Eastern Europe, they sort of define themselves as anti uh, this wokeness and political correctness. So maybe that, maybe that helps, you know, China defines itself in opposition to the West. Uh, I see, I see places like um, uh, Sweden and like Germany, you know, I, I just see them completely swallowing this stuff with absolutely zero uh, resistance or pushback. And France, it seems like it's somewhere, uh, somewhere in between where there's, they talk about it, there's some resistance to it, but it's also, it's also making inroads. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, you know, if, uh, uh, the, the population mainstream politicians are definitely op opposed to it, but it doesn't mean that they're going to do what it would what would need to be done to really fight it, and and they won't, you know. I mean, uh, what's going to happen next? You know, in two thousand twenty-two, we have another next year. We have another presidential election. I think the most likely outcome right now is Macron's going to win. You know, I think he's going to win probably like fifty-five, forty-five. But I have to say that this is also what I was saying a few years ago after he was elected. But no, after the yellow vest, after the pandemic and everything, I'm thinking, you know that there is a lot more variance in that prediction than used to be the case. So, um, I, you know, I still think it's overwhelmingly likely that he will win, but you never know, you know, so some weird things could happen. I mean, Macron himself was a weird thing, you know, like it wasn't supposed to happen. Uh, it did. So who knows? After that, you know, I mean, there are, you know, there's something interesting, like we, we never had anything like Fox News in the in France, you know, uh, like the, the media was always, it wasn't like, it wasn't and it still isn't, although this won't last long in the media, I think. It's one of those things that, that is going to, that are going to be taken over. Uh, it wasn't like woke or anything, but it was like classical French left uh, kind of bias, you know. And it's for, for the most part, it's still the case. But I do think that uh, in the media, journalists are going to get taken over by this stuff. Like young journalists are really into this woke stuff. And I think it's only going to get worse from now. Yeah. Um, but, you know, but is, the, is, there data, is there data showing they keep saying young academics, young journalists in France? I don't doubt that it, it could be true. Uh, do we have data on that? 
I don't think I don't think we have good data on this. Uh, no, I don't think we do. But I I have uh, it. It is granted. It is uh, purely anecdotal evidence. But uh, I do know a lot of them in both on both you know in both categories. So um, I'm I'm very I'm pretty confident that it is increasing very fast uh, in in those categories. But the difference with the U.S. is that it's having a lot of difficulties making inroads outside of those things. Yeah. Uh, wasn't there wasn't there data that Le Pen and uh, Front National wasn't didn't they have a lot of young support? Yes, yeah, so that's the difference between France and say the UK. Uh, yeah, the the Le Pen. I'm not sure that's still the case, but for quite some time was the first like uh, the the Rassemblement National, the party um, um, was the, the 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 first party among uh, people between 18 and 24. And and this was true for several years. I don't know if it's still true, but yeah, you have a um, that's surprising, and you know, it's not something you see again in in uh, not something you see in uh, in the U.S. In the U.S., difficult to compare because you uh, you have you have you have you have very strong uh, uh, bipartisan. Uh, well, you only you only have two main parties, you know, and the rest basically doesn't exist. Uh, this is also kind of true in the U.K., but it's a bit less true. Um, yeah. And uh, in the UK, you know, there's also like very little support for the right or the far right on the among young people. Uh, so this is uh, this is strange. But you know, uh, Mélenchon, the far left guy, also has a lot of support among young people. And I think so. I don't take my word on this because I'd have to check. But I seem to remember that in more in more recent polls, uh, Mélenchon was no first, and it wasn't uh, Le Pen anymore among young people but you know paradoxically that's a huge difference between france and between trump and le pen for instance that trump's strength was mainly among old people and and what uh what put biden over i guess probably the main thing is that he, he made some enough inroads among old people that that was enough to beat trump basically and uh uh in france le pen le pen's problem is actually old people the yeah. reason why le pen hasn't won a an, an, uh, presidential election that's because of old people, because old people don't vote for the National Front or no, the Rassemblement. Well, I think, I think Le Pen lost every age group, but lost old people the worst. As I yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, she, she wouldn't die. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, I, I misspoke. Head to head, yeah. She wasn't going to win last time, even if she had had, like, old people. But uh, but she she lost by a, 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 the widest margin among among old people, which is very surprising from a... I bet for for an American, you know, that's not what you would expect based on what you see in the U.S. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was and you know, maybe if she'd had the margin as strong as, no, she wouldn't have won last time. But this time, I don't think she's going to win again. But if she had the kind of margin among all people that Trump does, then she would definitely win this time. But she won't because she doesn't, and she won't. Yeah, yeah. I I, remember, I was looking at the Polish data, and there was two there was like two mainstream candidates, and the young people went more for the mainstream liberal candidate, but there was also a huge jump among the young for the like the real hardcore, more nationalist candidate too. So it was like almost nothing in the old people, and the young people is like you know twenty percent or something. So you do see that where uh, I think in continental Europe it's not like the Anglosphere, at least I, I think the U.S. and U.K. where it's universally the young are more liberal and part of that is uh because of uh race and because the young people are more uh, non-white but also just within whites you see uh greater liberalism at the, at the younger ages and it seems like it's it's a little more complicated in europe maybe yeah for that's the general trend but there's more uh 
difference. I mean, but, you know, I, I would be interested in like young college graduates more than I would be just young people in general in France, because that's going to determine the future. If Le Pen or, or these nationalists are the party of, you know, less educated young people, you know, maybe they'll be electorally viable in the future. Uh, but, you know, they're not going to they're not going to affect the culture all that much. Yeah, and, and they are. I mean, you know, um, like there, there is a huge like education gradient that we see basically everywhere in the West. You know, there's this polarization along educational lines that we've seen in the U.S., that we've seen in the U.K., that we see in France, too. Like it's really striking. It's a it's a widespread phenomenon that so, you know, there are some differences like the age age like as a, is it affects the uh, how people vote differently in France, very differently in France and in the U.S., and it's definitely not just because of, uh, you know, the, the uh, race uh, plays out differently, like a different age, or because that's also true in France, um, probably to a similar extent to the U.S. But even if you just look at white people, young white people and old white people, uh, it's a huge difference. You know, like in France, the old white people, they're going to vote more right wing, but they're not going to vote uh, for Le Pen. And uh, uh, but, but but the education thing, the polarization along educational uh, lines. This is something that you see in France very strongly, just like as you see it in the U.S. Uh, and as you see it in the U.K. You know, in the U.S., it seems to be uh, one of the main reasons that Trump has made uh, gains among uh, uh, non-whites. You know, uh, at the last election is because uh, mostly he's been making those gains among uneducated, non-college educated, uh, non-whites, uh, and, and so you know that's how strong the uh, uh, this uh, education effect is, and and you see that in France too. It's kind of this phenomenon I find pretty fascinating. It, it really has this. Uh, it's really striking how uniform it is across the West, uh, and probably beyond the West. I'm pretty sure in Japan you could probably see that too. I don't know enough about politics in Japan, but I, I would be surprised if you yeah. could see. I that. had someone try to explain to me the politics in in Korea once, and it didn't sound like anything like the West actually. So I don't know how. So this is, they were saying that the, like the right wing party in uh, Korea at some point wanted to put halal meals into schools or something because they had like two Muslims in Korea, I guess, or something. And this was the right-wing party. And um, the left-wing party was sort of opposed to that. And someone said that to me and I was like, what? Yeah, that's completely, that's completely different. So I don't know how much this stuff translates. I, don't, I think, uh, you know, especially right, left, I think Korea is more westernized. I, Japan or, you know, especially something like China. I don't know if you'd see these, uh, you'd see anything similar in these kind of divisions. Uh, even Eastern Europe, I saw Putin's approval rating with Russia, with uh, Russian young people uh, was pretty high. And I don't think there was this huge drop off. It might've changed in the last few years. Last time I checked was, you know, uh, last time when I, when I read this, it was like three or four years ago, but he was, he was doing very well with, um, with, the young people in Russia. So yeah, I don't know if that's actually held over time. But anyways, uh, yeah, this has been, I mean, a fascinating conversation, Philip. We, we covered we covered a lot of ground. I mean, I'm I'm excited to bring you on to CSBI. I mean, I love the lockdown piece. You know, you got it, you got it into the Wall Street Journal. It's part of the conversation. And I uh, I mean I look forward to, to doing a lot more with you and, and seeing what you produce. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. And I'm also looking forward to it. I think uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of great things we can do. I'm very excited. There are already like a lot of good people at CSPI and I'm, I'm very excited about uh, contributing to it and like making it something that, that matters, you know, putting it on the intellectual map and like making a contribution. That's, that's going to be great. All right. Great, man. Have, have a good day. Thanks, you too.